I am not by any means an expert on Asian cuisine or Asian cooking. But I did spend about a year and a half traveling around Asia on board the MV Dulos. I spent time in Thailand and Malaysia in the Philippines and South Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong. And during that time, and also through friendships on board the ship, I learned of one universal, consistent in ingredient in much of Asian food. To a Western nose, okay, this ingredient um, no offense meant, it's nasty. Um, it smells like something that needs to be destroyed. Actually, it smells like something that has already died a long time before and should have been thrown away. It's called fish sauce. And uh, not too long ago, I watched a um, documentary, and one segment of the documentary was about how they make fish sauce. I'm just going to summarize it for you. I wish you could see it. It's terrifying. They take uh, fresh fish and they hang all these fish in the hot sun and they wait for days. And as the fish, they say as the fish dries in the hot sun, but really as the fish decays in the hot sun, it drips liquid. For days. They collect all that liquid, and that is the basis for fish sauce. Now, here's the rest of the story. When someone who knows what they're doing mixes that fish sauce with other ingredients under the right conditions, oh man, it is so good. It is so delicious. And as I said, I may not be a, a, a professional when it comes to Asian food, but you can tell I, I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate it very much. And I've had Asian friends of mine say that fish sauce is essential. It's an essential ingredient. You can't make the dishes without it. There's no substitute. You can't have this, the wonderful product, without this, the terrible fish sauce. It goes together. And if you try to substitute or take this out, you cannot end up with the same delicious final product. Now, human suffering is a lot like fish sauce. I'm not trying to minimize suffering, but I want to use this as an analogy. Suffering is painful and unpleasant. It's discouraging, and usually we do everything we can to avoid it. It's not fun to think about. It's terrifying oftentimes to contemplate. But God has told us, he has warned and in a sense promised his children that suffering is an essential part of his work in us to transform us into the people that he created us to be. Jesus said to his disciples, it's a very simple and direct statement, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. And Somehow, many of us, and I'm including myself in this, we think that a sign of God's favor is an avoidance of suffering. And that's not necessarily true. Of course, Jesus also completes that statement. He just doesn't leave us there in this world, you will have trouble. 
He promises that he will give us his peace so that ultimately where he is, there we will also be. God uses suffering. It's one of his primary tools in the life of believers. It's an essential ingredient. And as with the fish sauce, so human suffering in the hands of a divine God also leads to a beautiful final product. Suffering is one of the sub-themes of the book of Acts. And we've already seen the apostles suffer. Today we're going to see that suffering begin to spread to the broader church. And though we might not like to think about it, we need to understand more of the relationship between God and our suffering. Now the context that we're looking at here in Acts is immediately following Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. We looked at that speech two weeks ago. Remember, Stephen is one of the seven men appointed to ensure that the distribution of food within the, or rather to the widows within the church would be done in an equitable manner, fairly. That the Grecian widows would not be left out of that food distribution. He becomes quite a polarizing figure between this new Christian faith and then the proponents of the Jewish faith, particularly the Jewish leaders. They arrest him, they put him on trial, and his defense is the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. It's also the longest chapter in the book of Acts. We're going to pick up immediately at the end of his speech. So what has gone just before is that Stephen has directly accused the Sanhedrin of killing the very Messiah that they so claimed to long for, the promised one himself, for executing Jesus. So I'll pick up the reading near the end of Acts 7 in verse 54, and we're going to read about Stephen's death and then the few verses that immediately follow it through chapter 8, verse 4. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed to him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This morning, I'd like to draw out for us Three aspects of God's relationship to suffering, specifically in the lives of us, his children, his sons and his daughters. 
The first of those aspects, the first of those principles, is that the Holy Spirit fills God's people specifically for and in suffering. When we consider the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we usually expect it to be for some great ministerial purpose, and often it may be to preach, to testify, to prophesy. But in Stephen's case, the Holy Spirit fills him for his suffering and for his death. He has completed his testimony. He's done with his confrontation before the Sanhedrin, and he's on the verge of his execution. And it's at this point that Luke reminds us as readers that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 55. Wouldn't it have made more sense as Stephen is preparing his defense before the Sanhedrin to say he was filled with the Spirit so that he could speak this incredible sermon and this incredible defense? But no, Luke is drawing our attention to it that he's filled with the Spirit as he's about to die. It's at the very, very end. He has no work left. He has been faithful and he's filled with the Spirit. And as we noted two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit opens Stephen's eyes to see heaven and what he sees there gives him the courage and faith to face his last and his greatest trial. It's it's normal for us to fear suffering. We read about people in the Bible like Stephen who suffer deeply and... I don't know what you think, but I often find myself thinking things like, man, God, keep that far from me. Keep that far from me. I hope that never happens to me. And if it does happen, I'll never be able to respond with the grace and faithfulness that Stephen does. We look at others around us who are suffering. And we, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we may not pray this out loud, but I think in our hearts, we might say something like, Lord, bless them. Give them courage, give them strength, and keep their suffering far from me. Don't make me go through that. Luke shows us through Stephen that God fills his children with his spirit in order for them to walk through suffering. When you're suffering, and I, I use that, ver- that word pretty broadly right now, okay, um, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, maybe, maybe you pray for strength. Maybe you pray for hope. God, give me courage. Help me make it through this. But I was struck this week uh, as I asked myself, have I ever prayed in suffering, in pain, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit in this suffering or for this suffering or through this suffering. If the Lord leads us into suffering, he will fill us with his spirit in order to face what comes our way. And like Stephen, to face it with grace and faithfulness. There are only four people in my immediate family. But between the four of us, we have seven passports. And let me tell you something, I, I am well aware that, 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 that we are not anywhere near the leaders in that category in this church. Uh, the bands 
were here in the early service and I asked them how many passports they um, have to juggle as a family and they couldn't even remember, but they think it's 12, okay? Um, Charlton's, I bet you guys have quite a few passports that you juggle. Anyway, a lot of juggling of passports, but let me tell you something. When my family travels and we're checking in at the airport, I'm not the most organized of people, but I keep track of all those passports. And when do I give the passports to my sons? It's right before they need to hand them to the agent. I don't give them to them the day before. I'm following my dad's example in this. You know, he never gave me my passport a day before I needed it. He didn't give me my passport an hour before I needed it. He gave me my passport about two seconds before I needed it. And we all know why. When we look at particularly the suffering of others or we imagine the suffering that may come our way in the future and we think, and, and rightfully so, we think, I could never walk through that. I could never survive that. And not just survive it, but I could definitely never do it being faithful to Jesus through it. Well, that's true for all of us. Because the infilling of the Spirit for suffering will come when we need it. It will come as we're stepping in, as God is leading us into that suffering. As God is leading us into that pain, His Spirit will fill us for that specific purpose, right when we need it. This should bring us profound comfort that with Stephen we see that God is on His throne and that God is for us. I pointed out two weeks ago that it's unique in Scripture for Jesus to be shown standing at the right hand of the Father. In almost every other scriptural context, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. This time, it's unique. And it's, it's a beautiful picture because the Son of God stands and reveals himself to his son, Stephen to the Son of God, Stephen. And he, he stands in honor of Stephen's faithfulness and of his witness, and he stands to receive the soul of Stephen into the very presence of God. Stephen recognizes this, doesn't he? Because some of his last words are, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, you who are standing at the right hand of the Father, Standing for me, you who are for me, receive, receive my spirit. There's a picture here of the, all the Trinity, the fullness of the Trinity present. The Holy Spirit infilling the child of God. The Father seated on the throne of ultimate and total and complete authority. And to his right, his son standing to receive the soul of his servant. It's a powerful picture of God on the throne and God for his people. There's a story that I've shared with some of you in the past, twice I think in the context of a sermon illustration. I'm going to inflict it on you once more because I think it illustrates this point so well. Another missionary that we support is named uh, Pastor Joaquin de Andrade. And Pastor Joaquin's specific ministry is in the area of cults. 
specifically studying cults and then preparing the church to address and respond to cultic teaching. A number of years ago, Pastor Joaquin registered to take a class, a, a sort of a survey class of Brazilian spiritism. He took it at USP. And he tells the story that at one point during one of those class sessions, the teacher was describing these entities that some branches of spiritism believe in called Odishas, who are spirits, sort of like spirit guides and spirit aids, um, false spirits, as we would say, servants of not of Christ. And um, the belief is that the teacher was explaining that these Odishas can be of great help to an individual, but the individual also has to do all within their power to keep the faithfulness of these Odishas. So they have to sacrifice to them. They have to act in such a way that will keep them close or otherwise the Odishas will abandon them to someone else. And then he ended by saying, and of course, everyone knows that all Odishas will leave a person at the moment of their death. As they're about to die, Odishas leave and they go find someone else who has more life to offer. Pastor Joaquin says, aha, gospel opportunity. And he raises his hand and he says, um, excuse me, um, I, this isn't very comforting. No, I want a God. I want a deity that's not going to leave me at the most difficult point of my life, but that's going to be faithful all the time. And the teacher said, and I quote, aí só Jesus. Now, for those of you who may not understand the context in Portuguese, what he literally said was, oh, only Jesus, which is an expression that's used in Portuguese. He wasn't literally saying only Christ will be faithful to his followers to the very end. He, it's, it's an expression by which we express an impossibility. Um, there's, you know, that, that can never happen. You can never accomplish that. Oh, only by Jesus. Uh, and Pastor Joaquin said, I agree, thank you. That's why I follow Jesus, because he will be faithful to the end. Our God is different from all others. He does not abandon us in suffering, but rather fills us with his very spirit if we allow him to do so. And I, I want to add here that I don't think this applies only to big sufferings. I know that we compare, <clears throat> whether we should or not, we compare our suffering with the suffering of others. And I think it's right to keep our experiences in perspective. There are levels in severity of suffering. But what I don't want us to miss is the opportunity for God's Spirit to fill us for the purpose of suffering to accomplish His purpose. So if we think, well, this, you know, this suffering is, is minor, so I'm not really going to address it or deal with it. I'm not really going to ask or acknowledge the Holy Spirit's filling for this purpose, then we might miss out. But at what point does a suffering become a big suffering? You know, I know that there are some of you who are suffering because you have small children who are not sleeping through the night and you're exhausted and you're wiped out. Have you ever considered asking the Lord that his spirit would fill you specifically as you traverse through this trial? 
There are some of you who are unemployed, and that is a form of suffering. I'm sure that you have begged God for a job. But have you asked him to fill you with his spirit, to work his purposes in and through you as you walk this path of unemployment? The second aspect of God's relationship to suffering is that God uses suffering to catalyze his mission. Let me say that again. God uses suffering to catalyze his mission. The very day that Stephen is killed, a great persecution breaks out against the church. It's as though there were this large dam holding back persecution, but animosity toward the church is building. Pressure is growing. And the evil of Stephen's execution detonates an explosion that opens the dam and the venom is unleashed against God's people in a torrential flood. The term here, great, refers to both the scope and the depth of the persecution. Scope meaning how broad it was, that it touched many, many, many people. And then depth having to do with its harshness and its pain, killing some, imprisoning many, and driving hundreds or even thousands from their homes. So think about that. How bad would things have to get for you to leave the home that you own and run away just with what you can carry. Things would have to get pretty bad. Things were bad in Jerusalem. Things were really, really bad. But then verse 4 of chapter 8, the last verse that I read this morning, it's as a simple statement but profound in its implications. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You see how this suffering, how God uses it to catalyze his mission. God has entrusted his church with the mission of making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, and teaching those disciples to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And in this case, suffering spurs the early church on to spread, to perform this mission. And you remember Acts 1.8. On the second Sunday in this series of Acts, we focused in on this verse where Jesus tells his disciples, right before Jesus goes back to heaven, right before his ascension, he tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses where? Go ahead, you can call it out. Where? Where's the first place? Okay, we need to start the study of Acts over again. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, that's been happening. The first seven chapters of Acts has been all about Jerusalem. What's the next? So if Jerusalem is the narrowest, smallest circle, then there's another bigger circle around it. What circle is that? What's the next place? Judea and Samaria. Hang on a second. Where to where were all of these believers scattered? Hmm. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Christ's prophecy is coming true. His church is spreading, and as the church spreads, the gospel is spreading. 
We can get into a theological argument of whether God sent this persecution or God permitted this persecution, but in this context, it doesn't matter to the point of what I want to say. It's that God uses the persecution. He uses the suffering to catalyze his church to complete his mission. And as suffering and persecution moves the church, I want us to note two things about what is happening. The first is how Stephen's message prepared the way for the spread. Do you remember that one of Stephen's main contentions with the Jewish leaders was that the temple was no longer essential to the Christian faith. So the Christian faith was not tied to the temple. And now, through Stephen's words, through his testimony and his witness, it's as though an anchor cable that's been holding the church in Jerusalem, it's been cut. And when the faith is no longer limited by or to the temple, the faith just explodes outward. So Stephen's speech has prepared the way theologically for the gospel to spread. And now persecution prepares the way circumstantially. It prepares the way practically for the spread to happen. Now here's the second note I want to make here about the mission of God catalyzed through suffering. It centers on Luke's use of the word scattered. In Greek, that word is diaspero. And it's not the normal word that a Greek speaker or writer would use in this context because it's not a random scattering. It's not the word used for throwing things up in the air and having the wind take them wherever they will go. It's the word used for the intentional scattering of seed on the ground. It's what a farmer, an ancient Near Eastern farmer, would have done with his seed as he scatters it on ground that has been prepared to receive it. So isn't that an interesting picture? It's God sowing his people. He's planting his people as his witness seeds. And wherever they end up, wherever they go, God is preparing them to grow and flourish. This is very important theologically because of how we should view God's suffering. That through suffering, he is planting us as his witness seeds. God sees his people being scattered more as missionaries than as refugees. And we see this in their actions. Uh, spreading the word everywhere they went, that response can only be empowered by the Holy Spirit because if I have been driven out of my home in terror with the threat of death or imprisonment hanging over my head and it's because I am a believer in this person named Jesus and I go to some new place, you think the first thing I'm gonna do is start telling people all about why I'm there? Oh yeah, I'm here because people back in Jerusalem want to kill me because I'm part of this new faith uh, and all the Jewish leaders there are against me and they want to kill me, they want to imprison me and it's a great faith, you should join it too. That's not a normal human reaction. 
I remember reading this as a child or hearing this as a child, and the picture that came to my mind is just these people all burdened down with all their household possessions, right? They grab what they can grab. So, you know, they've got chairs strapped on their back. And I don't know, probably not, but that's how I imagined it. And, and, they're, and they're joyful. And so as they're walking along, they've been chased out of their homes. They're walking along, and it's like, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Everywhere they went, they're preaching the gospel. That's a Holy Spirit response. Um, that's not a human response. So the, a question that we have to ask ourselves is, I need to ask myself, Am I willing to accept that God wants to use the suffering that I face as a catalyst for his mission? There are, uh, I I know a number of you have, have suffered deeply and profoundly in many different ways. But I think we have, uh, there are two distinct examples of this question of of being planted as God's witnesses through suffering that we've seen in our church just in the last year. And there may be others as well. I'm sure there are. I'm just not aware of them necessarily. But we see this in in both the Rast family and in the Hostetler family. As the Rast family, almost a year ago to this day, well, on the 18th of December, Cindy Rast, mother and wife, died after a four-year battle with cancer. And then earlier this year, Caleb Hostetler died after a two-year battle with cancer. And many of you had the opportunity to participate in both of those memorial services. Cindy's, which was last December, Caleb's, which was just a few weeks ago. Because of the pandemic, it had to be um, pushed forward. And you may not be aware of how many members of staff of the hospital where those two patients had been treated, how many of them showed up to the memorial service. And it's because both of those families were planted by God through suffering as his witness seeds in that hospital. And they showed up, and the, the relationships continue, and the questions continue, because they're, these people are so intrigued and fascinated by people who can face the worst suffering that we can imagine. The deterioration of mind and body to the point of death. Premature death, as we would say it in our, in our human limited perspective. And yet these people remain joyful, and they remain true. In, in what they say they believe. And they're consistently inviting others in to hear and to know what they believe. This is an example, a very real-time example for us of how God might use suffering to plant us, to scatter us as his seed. Are we willing for him to do that? The final aspect of God's relationship to suffering is this, that God can transform the persecutor into an apostle. Luke is clear to emphasize Saul's involvement with this persecution. We first hear his name as the one at whose feet the false witnesses against Stephen lay their cloaks. And then next, Luke notes that Saul approved of Stephen's murder. He's standing there, as I imagine him, with his arms crossed, leaning against a door frame, just nodding his head. That's right, Stephen, you deserve this. That's right, guys. 
more rocks, more stones. I approve of this. And now he's one of the primary drivers of this great persecution. His goal is to destroy the church. That's what literally he goes about to destroy the church. He's going from house to house to root out every believer he can find to drag them off to prison, to silence, to silence them, to shut them up, to quiet their witness. And Luke is using a lot of foreshadowing here (laughs) because uh, Luke is actually writing about a friend of his. Saul and Luke become very close friends. They become co-laborers for the gospel. Saul, under a different name, is going to write a lot of letters that contain a lot of God's truth to a lot of different people in churches in the ancient Near East. And in several of those letters, he's going to mention his friend Luke, the doctor. We all know God is going to completely and utterly transform Saul from a vitriolic destroyer of the church to one of its greatest propagators and champions. And the change is so profound, it's even going to involve a name change. We all know this already, right? Saul is going to become Paul, and he will be made the apostle to the Gentiles. God's primary means for taking his gospel to the ends of the earth. So he's used the church to get it to Judea and Samaria, and then he's going to use Paul, not just Paul, others as well, but Paul's kind of driving it to spread his word to the ends of the earth. You know what? The vast majority of us in here or listening online are Gentiles. We owe a lot to God's transformation of Saul into Paul. As you know, Paul is going to write a lot of what we today call the New Testament. His influence will be vast and enduring. And all of this from one of the greatest and earliest antagonists to the gospel. Who would have thought? I wonder, Stephen about to die looks over and sees Saul. He's like, I, I see a brother over there. I see a brother who's going to spread the gospel. No, he looked over there and he saw an enemy. God can transform anyone. We really need to remember that. If, if there's someone persecuting you, someone who is harming you, making your life miserable, causing you to suffer. We know our human reactions toward that person, right? In our minds, in our words. But we don't know if that person might not be a Saul. It might be your witness, the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life that God uses to reveal himself to them. A number of years ago, Al Gore Uh, produced a a movie or a video called An Inconvenient Truth. The Bible uh, is full of inconvenient truths, uh, and they way predate Al Gore. One of those inconvenient truths, Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.44 when he says to his disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is not, that's an inconvenient truth. Command. And just to be clear, when, when he says pray for them, Jesus isn't saying pray that they will be destroyed. I have a lot of prayers that I could pray for those who persecute me. I haven't really undergone much persecution, but you can imagine those prayers. Oh, yes, I will pray for, for the one who persecutes me. That's not what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying pray for their conviction 
Pray for their repentance. Pray for their redemption. Pray for their transformation. It's a hard word for us, but it's also the Lord's calling so that we might be agents of transformation, even to those who are most ardently against us, against God, and against his church. Because God transforms. Look what he did with Paul. Well, I'm assuming you know the end of the story when I say that, because it's coming here in Acts pretty soon. This sermon this morning is not meant to be a full theology of suffering, but I hope it may be a beginning. I actually read a statement by a theologian this week that said, um, maybe if we had, if the church had a better theology of suffering, we would need less therapy for suffering. Um, I think therapy has its place and we should make use of it, but I understand what he's trying to say. That we're oftentimes blindsided and, and taken aback by suffering, surprised that God would allow me, his child, his servant, to suffer. But I think, um, I think the Lord would call us to a change of perspective and attitude as it involves suffering. I'm not suggesting that we should eagerly seek and hope for suffering, but rather that in our thinking, we need to begin to coach ourselves to train ourselves intentionally in the way we think about suffering, to understand suffering in God's hands as a tool he uses to make us into his image, to further his mission, to purify us and prepare us, and to plant us as his witness seeds. It's like those surgical tools in the hands of a skilled surgeon. The surgeon is doing the act, but sometimes those, those tools are used to cut, to excise, to cauterize, and in other ways to cause things that, that are physically painful. But the end purpose is for health and healing and goodness. And in God's hands, this is what suffering, this is the, the harvest of suffering. And we can take comfort in the fact that our God has suffered. If our God had not suffered, then him leading his children into suffering would be cruel and tyrannical. But he has gone before us. He has suffered. He is familiar with our weaknesses. Jesus is a high priest, familiar with our weaknesses, so says the author of Hebrews. And since he has walked the road of suffering in front of us, before us, in his sands, suffering itself is redeemed. For those of you who were here last night for the Behold the Lamb of God presentation, um, you heard Joel Rast in his testimony say something very meaningful. For those of you who plan to attend tonight, um, you'll hear it tonight, so this is a little bit of a spoiler warning. But as, as Joel said, the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that Jesus submitted himself to the suffering inherent in the limitation of a human body and, of course, ultimately death on the cross. The fact that Jesus took on human flesh means, does not mean that we will never suffer, but it does mean that we will never suffer alone because Christ has walked the road of suffering ahead of us and he is walking each suffering today with us. God will fill his people with his spirit for and in suffering. 
He will use suffering to catalyze his mission in and through us. And he's powerful to transform the one causing the suffering into his servant for his glory. So don't give up praying for those people. Don't give up praying for those people, the ones that you think are the most unlikely candidates for conversion. Don't give up. Because we don't know which ones of those will be Saul's.